Well, I'm, I'm grateful to be here again. I love coming over to Fullerton. Would you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14? We are going to hear about one of my heroes, and I hope, if not already, she becomes one of your heroes by the time we're done this morning. In Mark chapter 14, we hear another amazing story from the life and ministry of Jesus. And this morning, we're introduced to a woman who really is, I think I might have mentioned last time I was here, I have a list of people I want to meet in heaven, sort of in order of priority. I don't know if that'll actually be able to happen, but uh, but I, been, over the years, I, I've always had like Moses and David and Peter and Elijah at the top of my list. But over the years, heroes like our hero this morning have been rising to the top of the list. And this woman is right near the very top of my list of people I want to sit down and talk with in heaven. And we'll, we'll get acquainted with her and even more so with her Savior this morning. Let's pray as we go to the Word. Lord, thank you for redefining heroism for us in a way that is so not like the world, not like our society's definitions of heroes. So Lord, would you please help us to think the way you do? We need a transformation of thinking, even those among us who may have thought about these things for a long time, I pray that there would be an increase in our understanding of you and your ways this morning. And so help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't I read this story and then uh, talk about it together and then make some points. Here we go. Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that's Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So you see their political motives, their politically motivated actions here. Oh, I'm already sick of the election and we've got a year to go. <laughs> Uh, where everybody's doing everything for political motives, right? For political gain. Saying what you think will get you elected. And, and here we have politically motivated leaders. Not, not based on what they necessarily think is right, but will be politically expedient. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. 
And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Well, let's, let's, um, so good, so good. Let's, let's think about some of this here. We do have here a Mark and double sandwich. This isn't just a sandwich, this is a double sandwich. And what I mean by that is Mark loves to bracket stories with contrasting pictures. He's been doing it through the whole gospel. And what we have here is really two brackets with the meat in the middle of the story of this woman's devotion. The first bracket, I hope you noticed, is Passover. Passover preparation. So we have Passover preparation among the people and among the leaders. But then right after our story, we have the disciples preparing for Passover as well. So we've got a Passover bracket. And then we've got another bracket in the middle, right? With the betrayal of the leaders and the betrayal of Judas. So we've got the Passover bracket or, or slice of bread. We've got the, 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 the rejection of Jesus brackets. And then right in the middle, we've got this amazing meat of the story. The, the primary point within these brackets of this extravagant love and devotion of this woman. Again, to, to give us a contrasting picture here. Very important what he's up to here with this Mark and Double sandwich. And the first thing I want you to notice is all this conniving, all this betrayal, all this strategizing, all this effort to undermine what God's doing are completely futile. You've got the leaders scheming politically and wanting to get rid of Jesus because he's so hurting their prominence socially. And they're, they're puppets of the Roman government, but they're pretty powerful puppets within that context. And they like that role and they hate that Jesus is undermining it. And so they say, we've got to get rid of him. He's going to cause trouble. We've got to get rid of him. But we can't do it now because the people will cause an uproar. See, what's happening here is Passover, like we said. And what happens at Passover? Well, the Israelites get together and have a big feast of both Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which comes right in the tail end of it, which, which ends up being eight days and is to remember God's incredible provision for his people when they were in Egyptian captivity. And remember what the Passover is, right? It's this amazing salvation God provides from death for those people who took a lamb and sacrificed it and took its blood and put it over the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over, unlike the homes where that didn't happen, where the firstborn son was killed in that home by the angel of death. And so it's this amazing liberation from death in that context. But then it's the final plague, you remember, that leads to the exodus, God's people coming out of Egyptian slavery and then beginning the journey to the promised land. 
And so Passover, you can see, becomes this hallmark event in the life of Israel to remember God's amazing provision for them. So that's, you've got this Passover bracket. And so you've got this observance going on. And then you've got these leaders trying to connivingly get rid of Jesus. And you've got Judas betraying them. And even look at how their plans are changing. So they say, there's all this religious fervor. The population of Jerusalem would swell to three times its normal population. Imagine a fuller swelled to three times its normal population in a matter of a week. And by this time, two days before the Passover, that's happened. People are staying with their relatives. They're camping on the outskirts. It's just a wild, intense, amazing time. And religious fervor is high here. And so it's not the kind of environment you want to murder someone in who's having a public influence. They're right. It's a smart call based on their motives. But... Judas' betrayal changes their plan. Did you catch that? When they found out that he, one of the insiders, would betray Jesus for money, secretly they said, okay, we can pull it off if it's not a public thing. If it doesn't have to be public, we can get away with it. So they changed their plans. So their, their, their scoundrel plans get shifted because of Judas's scoundrel plans. But do you realize that in the midst of all of this human conniving, is God's sovereignty. That's, that's this massively important point here. God is always working out his good plan, even when evil seems to be winning. You've got plotting and betrayal and murder of the only truly innocent man who's ever lived, and in all of it, God's working. That's what the Bible clearly says over and over again. It says to evil people, you intended this for evil, but God meant it for good. And so these, these evil plots end up being uh, used by God for his own purposes. And the, the ones perpetuating them are unwittingly being used by God to accomplish the very thing he wants. Satan doesn't want Jesus to go to the cross. The theme of this series is the king and the cross, helping us to realize that those two things must go together. They can go together and they do go together. I love that we, we sang that song, You're Beautiful This Morning. And it gives us a picture of Jesus' cross as part of his beauty. He's not beautiful except for the cross. In many, in many ways, he's beautiful fundamentally because of the cross. As ugly as it is on a horizontal level, it's incredibly beautiful from God's perspective because of what it shows of God's heart and what it accomplishes in God's plans. And so can you see God's sovereignty in all of this? These leaders are doing everything they can to stop God's saving work. And every time they do something, it's just actually perpetuating that work. It's actually accomplishing that work. When I was a kid in Connecticut, in the summer, dandelions would be everywhere. I, I kind of miss dandelions. I remember being a kid and getting it. Remember those moments in life you remember so clearly as a kid? I try to think of this as a parent all the time. Where where you learn something that was counter to what you actually thought, and it becomes pivotal. You remember it. Things slow down, and it crystallizes some things. You know. Well, I love dandelions. I thought they were the coolest flower. They were, they were numerous. They would just show up. No one would plant them. No one would water them. No one would fertilize them. And these beautiful yellow flowers would just show up. And I remember having this really uh, uh, tough conversation with my dad when he said, Eric, actually, dandelions are not even a flower. <laughs> They're a weed, son. They're a weed. They wreck your lawn. You shouldn't like weeds. 
It's okay to like flowers, but not weed. And I was really struggling with this because they seem beautiful to me, but I got on board with the weed idea. And then I remember uh, <laughs> lawns all over Connecticut would have dandelions that went to seed. Right, with these giant dandelion heads, right, that have gone to seed now. And I can remember saying, I'm going to, you know, kill this dandelion so it doesn't kill our lawn anymore. And I would pick this big dandelion and <laughs> blow, and the, the seeds would go everywhere. And I said, that dandelion will never choke out a lawn again. And my dad saw me doing that one day, and he said, Eric, what are you doing? And I said, I'm killing all these dandelions. And he said, no, son. Actually, every time you blow on them, you're planting dozens of new dandelions. I said, no, that doesn't seem like it's what's happening, but it was. And I thought of that, that image in my mind of a kid thinking I was annihilating the dandelion cause when actually I was perpetuating it. And that's what's going on. Now, Jesus is not a weed at all, but that's where the illustration quickly falls apart. But... I love this idea that even in the midst of great seeming opposition to God's work, seeming uh, trying to kill his work, he's always engineering everything for his good purposes and his glory. I love that scene here where we see these human efforts to stop what God's doing and all the while God's accomplishing exactly what he wants. Trying to stop Jesus is like blowing on a dandelion that's going to seed. You just, you just are furthering his work and they don't know it. And so that should frame the way we view all evil. And most of the time, I don't think you can figure out how God's going to perpetuate his work when we see evil. But we should always know he is going to overcome evil. And we're going to look back and none of it will be gratuitous. None of it will be for naught. It will all be part of God's beautiful plan and purposes. And so we should oppose evil and hate it and fight against it. We should rage against the darkness. But the whole time we should be asking ourselves, wow, I wonder how we're going to look back and see how God beautifully worked in this. Even something as horrible as ISIS right now, you know, the, the, we just would want to do anything to stop them. And we should, but at the same time we should say, wow, I wonder how we're going to look back and see how all these things that seem to be so opposed to good are actually ending up accomplishing the very thing God wants. I, I think that's a very important point here. And, and what we see happening in these efforts is God actually taking our understanding of fundamental truths to a different level. Now, at this point in our story, Jesus is in Bethany. There's a, a symbolic gesture that Jesus has really turned his back, in a sense, on Jerusalem and on the temple. Remember, he, he leaves Jerusalem now, this place where you meet with God primarily, the, the, the city of God, Zion, and the temple he's now walked away from and on his way out, remember what he said about the temple? Oh, it's beautiful, all right, but it's going to be destroyed because it's just been preparation. It's just been a means by which you understand the deeper and truer temple of God, the place you meet with God, which is Jesus himself. His body becomes that place you meet with God. And so every time you take the Lord's Supper, you can think of that body imagery as that, that temple imagery that is the place we meet with God. So he turns us back on this primary place that was just a preparation for the ultimate place you meet with God, Jesus himself, his body, his blood, his work. 
And so he, he does that with, with Jerusalem and with the city. And now he's helping us rethink Passover, isn't he? This central observance of Jewish religious practice, Jesus is helping us realize, again, was just a foreshadowing of the ultimate provision of God. The first Passover was this, uh, this liberation from death and Egyptian slavery just to point us to the liberation from ultimate death and slavery to our own sin. And Jesus becomes our Passover sacrifice. His blood becomes what frees us from death and our own sin. And so everything's shifting. This massive shift is taking place. These things that seem to be ends in themselves, we find are just pointing us to something further. Even this woman's act of devotion, I, th I think Nathan said that he, we don't even know if she understood the full extent of what she was doing. I don't, th I don't think it, she necessarily did at all. I wonder if when Jesus said, oh, uh, leave her alone. Why are you troubling her? Don't you know she's preparing me for my burial? If she was a little bit shocked by that. That this is an anointing ceremony. Jesus, who will be murdered as a poor person, won't get the proper burial. Remember the women are running to the tomb after he's buried with spices to anoint him? Because as a murderer, he, as, as a criminal, he doesn't get the, the proper burial. And so they're going to try to do what they can after the fact. Oh, but Jesus recognizes he is getting a proper burial in the sense that this woman is actually preparing him, anointing him for burial here. And what's amazing here is this woman may have been saving this jar for her burial and her anointing or her wedding maybe. Very precious possession. And here she gives it all to Jesus in preparation for his burial. So our definition of even her beautiful act is taken deeper by Jesus. He's helping us to see that this is pointing to his death and his anointing for that death. And then it takes it even further. I wonder if she was also shocked by the fact that Jesus says there's going to be a good news, a gospel that is proclaimed all over the world. And when it is, she is going to be mentioned. What she did is going to be mentioned. Her, her, her devotion, her sacrificial, extravagant devotion will be mentioned. Maybe not always this exact story, but as Matthew said, we, we actually fulfilled that prophecy this morning as we're proclaiming the gospel and we, we mention her story. And so even her act, again, is, is being deepened for us in our understanding where Jesus is helping us to see how different this woman is from these disciples and these religious leaders, the ones actually in charge of getting it and helping others get it are missing it entirely. And this woman who's criticized and this widow before, just a few hours before, who's ignored is exalted. These two unnamed women here are really important for us in understanding God's way, God's economy in this world. Because as a couple of you mentioned, it's so different than we tend to think it's going to be. And so as the religious leaders are totally missing it, these two unnamed women in Mark's narrative are, are held up as heroic who are really getting it. And they're the criticized ones. They're the marginalized ones. They're the despised ones. This is such an ironic contrast 
with those in power and the poor widow and this criticized woman. And we have an anointing of a king here, and it's not done by a priest in the temple. It's done by an unnamed woman at the house of a leper. God's ways are so different than ours, so radically different than ours. And this all prepares us for the ultimate upside-down perspective, from our natural perspective, of a crucified king. To this day, this is what Jews struggle with most about Jesus as the true Messiah, as the true king, especially as God himself in flesh. That he hung on a cross, he seemed to fail miserably. And based on lots of horizontal data, you could easily come to that conclusion. But from God's perspective, it was the greatest victory in human history. And over and over again here, Mark is wanting us to see, God through Mark is wanting us to see that indeed the first will be last and the last will be first. The greatest in God's kingdom is the servant of all. So let's think about her devotion here. Let's think about what we see in this. I actually, I don't usually alliterate, but this one just worked so well. Her her expression, her her gift to Jesus was expensive, it was extravagant, and it was expressed. These three things, I think, jump out at us when we think about her gesture toward Jesus. Her devotion was expensive. As we said, a year's wage for a laborer. Um, do you know Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver just a few hours later, which doesn't even amount to $1,000? He was willing to sell Jesus for 1000 This woman was willing to give her gift of $45,000. You get this radical contrasting picture here of these blessings that she's giving to Jesus in light of Judas' just failure to understand. So her gift is expensive. We've said that. We've mentioned that. Uh, Second, it's extravagant. As one of you said, the jar was broken. Chris said she broke it. It wasn't like she was coming back for later, later for more. She broke the jar. There was this extravagance in it, this this offering of it with, with, with open hands entirely, and she used it all. And... Mark actually stumbles over himself. He just piles up all these adjectives when he describes this object of her devotion. He says it was alabaster, jar, ointment, uh, pure, genuine, nard, very costly. He's just got all these these descriptors piled up in the sense. He he really wants us to get the the extravagance and the expensiveness of this. Again, I could talk, we could talk a long time about it. It probably came from as far away as India. It was incredibly rare, incredibly expensive. And this is an extravagant gesture she gives here. Beautifully extravagant. Just pours it out. The, the, this was a, a potently fragrant uh, ointment that she expressed in this way, pouring it on his head, filled the room. I'm sure people left that room with that smell on their clothing and hair, maybe for days. One of the reasons I don't like going to Starbucks is I smell like Starbucks the rest of the day if I sit there for any length of time. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know what that smell is. It's steam-related in some way, I suppose. But, but, but yeah, but imagine leaving this room and days later someone saying to you, 
wow, what is that amazing smell? Well, let me tell you, I was at the house of Simon the leper and a king got anointed. And I was there and I still can smell that event. It's just an amazing, extravagant gesture on her part. She broke the jar. Everyone understood the extravagance of this. And as I said, literally, it says, what she had, she did. What she had, she did. Her, her doing was out of everything she had. Like that widow we looked at who gave all she had, Jesus sees this and says, oh, this is a beautiful thing, literally a good work. I love that word beauty, and I love that Jesse helped us think about the beauty of God that is displayed in all of creation because it all points us back to the beauty of God. That's a great word, isn't it? That's the word Jesus used to describe her act here. It was beautiful. I love that word. I love the word beautiful. Uh, have you ever thought about what beauty means? What does beauty mean? What would you say? Yes, pleasing to the eye, Lord. Yes, actually, that word pleasure is really the key word in understanding beauty. You nailed it. You nailed it. It's like you took a class in the philosophy of aesthetics. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, say what again, what you said? Yes, yeah, pleasing to the eye, but not just to the eye. That is certainly one of the ways we behold beauty. But in this case, part of the pleasure was the smell, the fragrance too, right? So a pleasurableness to the eye, to the senses in any way, in our understanding, music that you just hear and don't see can be incredibly beautiful, right? So it is a pleasurable, harmonious, uh, a perfectly orchestrated reality. So you... When you see beauty, what are the feelings it gives you? Yeah, there's, there's an, uh, an awe. Yeah, the feeling of awe that comes from something being amazing. Other feelings? Joy. Joy, yes. Excitement, Excitement yes. Appreciation. Yeah, you, you have an appreciation for it, a gratitude for it. We'll say again. Shivers and goosebumps when you see beauty, yes. Yeah, all very important feelings that this gives you. Peace, I think, is an important one to think about. True beauty it gives a sense of peace. You see a sunset and you go, oh, there, there's a symmetry, a harmony, a, a beauty to it that doesn't lead you to say, you know, I wish I could just tweak that a little bit and, and you don't if you listen to Bach and think of all the ways you would rearrange it you don't really understand beauty you're, you're foolish when it comes to music right if you're thinking when you see beauty you don't get the sense of needing adjustment and tweaking and additions and subtractions there's a completeness to it and what Jesus is saying is this is a good work this is a beautiful thing this is exactly what you all should be doing this is how, how it is. This is how it should be. You get a sense of, oh, yes, this is right. There's a rightness to this. There's a beauty to this. It was, Jesus says, a beautiful action. And please know that, and please hear me here. There is a definite place in life for accountants. We need accountants, good ones, desperately. We need a bottom line sorts of people. Yes, even in the church, bottom line sorts of uh, cost-benefit analysis sort of people who figure out the projections and all these things. But if that's all you've got, you'll never get beauty. 
I actually hope Christian accountants actually love accounting because there's a beauty to the symmetry of it all working out, Matt, yes? There's a beauty to math, yes? It's not art and math, is it? No, there should be the same sort of, ah, oh, in front of a Bruegel painting that there is in front of a solved equation, yes? yes. You solve equations, right? Yes, okay, good. Um, <laughs> Caroline is already way past me in my math ability. It's really frustrating. All right, so uh, yeah, there's a beauty to these things, but if all you see is things from a, a pragmatic level, and there's nothing more American than pragmatism. Do you realize how utilitarian, pragmatic, what is good is what works? It's Ben Franklin, stitch in time saves nine, penny saved is a penny earned. That, that's just an American way when you're surviving in the, the new land, right? But if that's all you've got, and I don't want to minimize that, but if that's all you've got, you'll never have beauty. You'll never have extravagant devotion and worship and faithfulness. You'll never have profound faithfulness. You'll never have true heroism. Heroes, you don't think, are doing cost-benefit analysis all the time, right? Usefulness is not our God. Efficiency is not our God. Nothing wrong with those things in themselves, but if that's all we're limiting ourselves to, we're grossly missing the big picture. Efficiency is not our God. Public opinion, as we see from this woman, is not our God. Traditional boundaries of politeness are not our God. One preacher put it this way, Jesus is our only God. And it is useful to use all we have to his honor and glory. This is not stupidity from God's perspective because the most important two words in this whole passage are to me. See, Jesus says this isn't foolishness because she's doing it to me. When Jesus is the object of your expression, of your expensiveness, of your extravagance, when Jesus is the object of your devotion and your generosity, nothing is too much, right? There is no overboard when it comes to expressing devotion to Christ. Amen. You know, there's this idea that, oh, you can get too carried away with it. That's impossible. When Christ is your focus, when it is done to him, when it is done for him, for his honor, for his glory, there is no possibility of going overboard. None. Now, this does not mean everyone is called to give up all their possessions like believers have through the centuries because that's what God had for them. But what it does mean then is that all you are and all you have is given with an open-handed devotion and extravagance to Christ. That's what this means. It may mean you save a lot of money for a long time really well so that it can all go to a cause that exalts the name of Christ. A means to use for something much greater than itself. Mere pragmatism never leads to true beauty or heroism or faithfulness or exuberant joy. And this woman comes, you can so obviously see, not out of sense of just duty, does she? It's not like, well, I got to go anoint Jesus today. So she takes her big two-liter bottle. We actually have a picture of very much likely what the jar looked like. This is an alabaster jar from, from the ancient world. And, and it's sealed like this. And she breaks it and, and gives it. And she walks to this dinner party with the intent of doing this. You don't get the sense it was, it, it was duty, but delight that she does this. And she knows, no doubt, she'll be criticized for this. And she does it anyway. 
And, but she gives with exuberance and extravagance and devotion. I love this expression. She is a true hero for us. And so it's expensive. It's extravagant. And please realize it's expressive. This is the one time PDA is a good, good thing. PDA, public displays of affection. We were, I was at the beach with my family last week, and there was a couple who had apparently lost all sense of where they were with their public display of affection on the beach. I almost threw sand on them. It was, I covered them up. And, and so, but, and so usually there, there's not much of a place for it, but here, this is a public display of affection. It's a beautiful expression this woman gives. Uh, and she gives it all. It's, it's just exactly what it should be. And she's criticized. The word here for their criticism is they were growling among themselves. It sounds as like it's growl. Oh, that's what religious people are like a lot. They see someone who's actually getting it and giving devotion to Christ like they should, and the religious people are going, oh, that's so improper. Remember, remember David when he comes back with the, with the Ark of the Covenant, finally God will be worshipped among his people like he should have been for all this time, and he's so rejoicing in this event that he dances, and it says he, he worships God with all his might. Oh, what a great way to describe our devotion to him with all our might, not passively in a detached way, but with all our might, we should worship God. That's just exactly how it should look. And out of delight, David dancing, and he's criticized by his wife like this woman's criticized. Right, look, that's real befitting for a king. And, and instead of just propriety being our goal all the time, is there a place for a kind of extravagance that makes religious people uncomfortable? And we were laughing about these signs, no jumping. And I said, unless it's worship, right? If you want to jump around and worship, that's okay, isn't it? And, and the people downstairs should be able to put up with that, yes. Uh, so, so, yeah, there should be an extravagance to this. And I want to back up and, and realize that, that extravagant devotion begins in your heart and I think leads with obedience. Before we get to, to expressing this in, in, say, corporate worship, I think it's important to express it in obedience. Can you imagine this woman getting up, having Jesus tell her to do something, and her saying, no, no, that's not for me. You don't know me very well. No, of course she's going to obey Jesus. That's what Jesus says. If you love me, you'll obey me. So he so values this expression, but he's also wanting us to realize that true devotion, true love shows up in obedience. Pursuing holiness, pursuing Christ-likeness. And then it does mean taking all you are and all you have and then wisely investing for Christ's sake. And every time I hear somebody say, for Christ's sake, I say, yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, not every time, but I think that every time. Yes, indeed, it's all for his sake. Yes, and, and that's, that's what we're seeing here, this extravagant gift given in this way. And so it shows up, and it does show up in corporate worship, too. I just think of how lackadaisical my heart can become. You know, you stay up too late on Saturday, and you get up, and you drag yourself in, and you argue with your spouse on the way here, and the kids are driving you crazy, and you roll in, and you don't even want to come. And it is out of duty sometimes, and that's part of the deal. But, but shouldn't we be seeking an exuberant excitement? Think about the fact that we get to worship God together. 
When all we should hear from him is depart from me, yet we hear, come unto me. And he loves our worship when it's done because of the gospel. Is that amazing? And instead we can be like, oh, I don't really like this song. Or this style isn't my style. Or, or you know, I'm not, I don't feel like it very much. But if we're really thinking rightly, would that be how we think? I saw this clip of this kid, this baby, who heard this song he loved and loved to dance to it. And I just want you to watch his response because I think we have something to learn from him when this song comes on. He's just playing and then watch what happens when his song comes on and he wants to dance to it. Okay, now, I, I love that kid because he's just playing, you know. I think of, you know, people out in the patio in La Mirada or just sort of meandering out. And, and then the worship starts. And, and it's, I think it should be a little bit more like this kid. Like, oh, the worship time is beginning. And maybe even fall on the way in because we're so excited to get in here, right? Trip over your Etch-A-Sketch on the way in because, because it's an incredible privilege to offer devotion to Christ in this way. But my, we can, if someone focused a camera on you and then played it for others in the midst of worship, would they say, well, now there's worshiping with all your might. And not just in corporate worship, although it's that too, but in life in general. Are we seeking, not all the time it's going to be that way, but are we seeking, though, to be people who show devotion to Christ with all our might? And here's the real point of this story. Like the widow who gave all she had, the real point of this story is this woman's example is important because it actually points beyond her too to the one who gave most extravagantly, most expensively, the one who gave most expressively, who for the joy set before him endures the cross and is seated at the right hand of God, who gave all he had, he gave. All he had to offer, he gave. The Father so loved, so he gave his son. Jesus loved, so he gave his life. See, the point here in this woman's extravagance is to point us beyond her to God himself. God gives extravagantly, more so than anyone else ever could. And he gives us himself in the person of Christ. And this is an outrageous gift worth far more than anything we could ever deserve. God's grace is so indeed amazing and extravagant that we behold the beauty of God in that extravagant love in Christ and then we love out of that. See, this woman had come to see Jesus for who he is in his beauty and she now responded in a way where she is beautiful. And that's how it works. When you see God in all his beauty, our lives become beautiful. Our lives become then a fragrant offering to God in who we become. Jesus gave everything he had for us. He gave his very life. And this becomes the good news that is, is seen in this woman's giving, in her devotion. Jesus gave it all with exuberant, extravagant devotion and joy. And we then, in response to that, give in that way. Oh, if you've never really understood the gospel, the good news that Jesus said would be proclaimed and this woman would be mentioned, Oh, Jesus is the way. He is the most beautiful thing you could ever imagine. And when we see his beauty, our lives start to become beautiful to him as well.
Father, help us to behold the beauty you've shown in Christ more each day. I pray that our lives would more and more become with all our might, worship and devotion, open-handed extravagance and joy. Lord, help us to not see anything as overboard or too expensive when it's done for your honor and your glory with, with all we are and all we have, with our um, resources you've blessed us with, with, with abilities and skills and relational ability and the sense of humor you give us and uh, the energy and the bodies and the possessions, all of it, Lord. I pray we would offer it to you and, and pour it out without feeling like we need to keep anything back. Lord, help us to see your beauty. In Christ we pray, in his name, amen.